Welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Robert Worley. Robert has a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and a PhD in mechanical engineering. He has over 20 years of experience building teams and leading development within the cardiovascular medical device space and is currently the CEO of Arterica, where he and his team are developing a novel approach to the percutaneous closure of large bore vascular access. Robert, welcome to Being an Engineer. Thank you, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be here. I would like to start off talking about Arterica just briefly. Um, in, in lay terms, you know, kind of dumb it down for us. Can you help us understand what, what does it mean, percutaneous closure of large bore vascular access? <laughs> sure. That's a, <laughs> that's a long story for a pretty simple problem. Uh, in this day and age, a lot of vascular surgical procedures and interventional cardiology procedures are done minimally invasively through catheters that are inserted in the groin and to run up then to the heart or into the aorta to treat various pathologies. And some of those catheters are about the size of a standard writing pen. And so it leaves a pretty good size hole in the artery when the procedure is finished. And today there are challenges in closing that hole that often end up requiring surgery. And we've developed a minimally invasive way to close the hole so that at the end of the procedure, our device goes in, closes the hole, and then the patient is, uh, uh, procedure is completed, and the patient can go off to recovery without having a big groan wound. How interesting. Okay, thank you for, for clarifying that. Um, I'm, I'm going to kind of jump back towards the opposite end of the spectrum now, uh, back to before you even started your career as an engineer. How did you decide that you wanted to become an engineer? <laughs> That's a really good question. Uh, I think all through high school, I had a bent through for technical things and enjoyed building things and solving problems and had the opportunity at the end of my high school career to take an engineering position at the, the local Naval lab. Uh, I grew up on the coast of Florida there and the Navy had a facility got a summer internship there in the mechanical engineering department, loved it, and as they say, never looked back. Uh, went to engineering school and mechanical engineering from there, and have just loved to fix things, uh, loved to find innovative solutions to problems. So it's it's been a, a really fun trip. As a kid, were did you find yourself fixing things often, maybe a bicycle, or as you got older, a car? What uh, what did you do as a kid that maybe maybe gave your parents, if if not you, uh, an inkling that engineering might be in your future? <laughs> Aaron, I wonder if you got a sneak at the playbook somewhere. I did not tee you up on that, but when I was about oh uh, ten or eleven years old, I thought it would be really interesting to understand how a lawnmower worked. So mm. I assembled the entire lawnmower. Oh, I uh, love it. You know, <laughs> take it apart and see how it works. Uh, I have to ask, did, did your parents know about this as it was going on? They did not. They were <laughs> only found out once the patient was on the operating table <laughs> and was apart. And uh, fortunately, they had a good sense of humor. And putting it back together took about five times as long. But it was sure. a great learning experience. And I bet. I'm, from there on, I was hooked. Oh, that's phenomenal. I, I love that. That's, I think that's like the quintessential story for so many budding engineers. Yeah. 
It was, and you learn more about the things that didn't work than you do the things that did. Absolutely. I, sometimes people ask me, um, you know, young engineers or students, what's the best way to learn uh, mechanical engineering? And, and I always say, go take something apart, you know, um, hopefully get your parents' permission or whatever, but find something and just take it apart and see how it works inside. There's so much value in, in such a simple uh, exercise. Absolutely. And there's uh, nothing that will give you insights as to opportunities for improvement so much as taking something apart and understanding uh, how it was originally put together. And invariably, you'll get insights as to how to improve it. And hopefully at the end of that process, you don't have any le leftover nuts or screws. <laughs> <laughs> yes, hopefully not. Hopefully. <laughs> but if you do, that's all part of the journey. Okay. Um, you spent, as far as I can tell, a, a solid eight years going to school to acquire first um, a, a, a bachelor's degree and then a master's degree and then a, a Ph.D., um, uh, most engineers will stop at a bachelor's and, you know, some go to the master's level. Very few go to the PhD level. What, what was your motivation behind getting a PhD and how has it helped you in your career? You know, from the very beginning, I was always interested in the hardest problems. Uh, when in college, the professors would say, well, we uh, assume for this analysis for this formula they were driving, we assumed this, my thought immediately was, well, what if that isn't true? What do we do about <laughs> that? And I had no interest in the assumptions. I wanted to challenge every assumption. And so I gravitated early in my career to want to work on the hardest problems, the problems that didn't satisfy all the usual assumptions. And my career has kind of gone that way. And uh, I've always enjoyed, enjoyed working on hard things. And someone once asked me, uh, what, what do you find most interesting about being an engineer and being in product development? And I said, it's really cool. I get to work on things I don't know how to do. Because yeah. as soon as I know how to do it, we give it to someone else. And then I, <laughs> else I don't know how to do. Right. It's a lot of fun. It's like it's like uh, walking towards the horizon. You're you're never going to get there, right? The joy is in the journey. Absolutely, and it's uh, it's an incredible journey. It is fun to see products come out the other end, though. I would say that early on, I found that I was not an academic, and that I needed more than just publishing a paper. Although I've been very fortunate to publish quite a number of papers along the way, but I really like to build hardware and build a product and see and and see an end user benefit from that product and particularly in the healthcare space. So um, for me, there's a lot of joy in taking on a hard problem and, and seeing it all the way to all the way to the end through a solution. I agree. There, there is something so almost magical about experiencing the process uh, in which you start with nothing but an idea. You know, it, it's, it's some, molecules and atoms in somebody's brain interacting in a way that causes a person to think of something new. And then you end up with this tangible physical thing that you can hold in your hands and use to do some kind of productive work. That that whole process is just, I love it so much. It's, it's magical. I don't have a better word for it than that. It absolutely is magical. And then when you see the person go on to use the thing you created, 
to treat a disease or solve a problem or create some unique value uh, in the economy that hasn't been created or a, a disease that hasn't been treated before. It's, it's incredibly rewarding and we're fortunate to be a part of that ecosystem. Yeah, who who needs LSD or hallucinogens? We've got engineering in our minds. Yeah, <laughs> um, for for some of maybe the students out there, it's not often that uh, that I get a chance to to speak with someone who's been through a PhD program. Why why might a student decide to pursue or or not pursue uh, a, a PhD? What what are kind of some of the pros and cons surrounding that? Yeah, for me, it was I really wanted the ability to confidently take on really hard problems and feel that I had the resources to apply to those. Uh, I also enjoyed the, I'll say, the confidence that comes that you learn in a PhD program. Uh, I think the most important thing you learn in a PhD program is not the detailed subject of your thesis. Uh, certainly not for most engineers. Uh, some scientists may disagree. But uh, for most engineers, what you really do is you learn how to learn. And you learn how to learn quickly in order to uh, come up with the relevant new insights and inventions that you're going to need to solve the problem that you're doing for your PhD thesis. And so for me, that was the attraction. Uh, I always have enjoyed challenges, and it was the, the next challenge. And it gave me a great background in all the engineering fundamentals. So I could quickly look at a problem and, and make assessments that certain approaches may work. Certain approaches clearly wouldn't work just with a, a rough order magnitude analysis. And I, at least uh, speaking personally, when I was at the, the bachelor's or even the master's level, I didn't have the command of the subject to be able to confidently go into those kind of things. Uh, that said, I would certainly not say a PhD is for everyone. If you uh, enjoy more the design side and less the technology side or less the analysis side, um, it may not be the right thing for you. But uh, it certainly was uh, aligned well with my gifts and my interests. And um, it played out along the way as I later got into being more of a full-time entrepreneur, that it brings a credibility that when you're building teams and building businesses, it brings a credibility that uh, also can open doors for you. I think that's a really helpful way to think about it, the distinction you made between design and uh, the, the kind of analytical side of things. Okay. Um, you, you've held a lot of different uh, research R&D roles in your career. What tools have you seen being used over the years that, that have enhanced an engineering team's ability to perform research effectively? And, and what tools do you think maybe are still needed? That's a very good question, Aaron. Um, well, let me go back to when I first got involved in medical devices uh, back in 1997, having uh, spent time in automotive and aerospace and some other industries and was fairly new to the medical device space and was looking at uh, an opportunity and looking at a problem that I was interested in solving and was interested as I learned about the medical device space that some tools that were routine in my tool belt just weren't used in that space. And I think uh, 
the cross-pollinization of you bringing tools from different industries to a new problem area is really powerful. Specifically, in my case, uh, in the aerospace and defense sectors, extensive use of sophisticated computer simulation and nonlinear finite elements and so on to, as part of a design process rather than something that you did at the end as a footnote. That was routine because you can't go build a $200 million satellite and go try it and break it and see where it fails and then build a new prototype next week. You had to get it right. The cost of the test was very expensive. And so when I got into medical devices, I was quite surprised to find that very little predictive engineering was done. And there was a lot of emphasis on hardware prototypes and with the idea that well, it's not that expensive to build these prototypes. And I said, yeah, it's not that expensive, but doing a clinical trial to evaluate them is really expensive. Mm, right. So why in the world are we not doing more work up front to understand the performance potential and design optimization of these using some of these tools? And so I brought some of the tools that I had used in other industries into to medical device and it, now these things are routine, but this was in 1997, 1998, when it wasn't routine at all. And I think that allowed a lot of value creation. It, it enabled us in specifically in, uh, in one company to have confidence in the design to invest millions of dollars to develop a new manufacturing process to make the very first prototype. And we never had the confidence to invest that kind of money without having some new tools to be confident we were going to like what we got out the other side. So, but uh, I think the, the intersection of technologies and bringing the cross-pollinization and bringing new technologies to an industry offers some really interesting opportunities for value creation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so FEA and, and computer simulation, they're pretty common these days. Do you have any thoughts about what, what are... Uh, what are some tools that uh, we still need as engineers that we maybe don't quite have yet? You know, in the med tech space, we struggle for good anatomic representations that we can use in the bench. Um, in the cardiovascular space, sure, we have pumps now that represent cardiac flow, but representing good models to represent uh, arterial tissue, for example, or uh, models to represent the, the various structures, support structures that hold arteries in place. Uh, mechanical models for these are things that we have to develop almost on a case-by-case -case basis. And our understanding of the mechanical properties there is still very rudimentary. And there's huge opportunities. And I know you in, in your uh, career have gone a long way towards inventing and developing insights into new ways to test devices. And that's another area where um, combine, bringing new test insights into the field so that we can more rapidly evaluate designs. These are huge unmet needs in this space. That's so interesting to hear you say that. You are not the first person that has uh, mentioned that to me, this need for better anatomical models. Um, very interesting. There, Like you said, great opportunities in that space. Hmm. Okay, um, 
You worked at uh, at least one automotive company, maybe two. Be, uh, earlier in your career, there was U.S. Electrocar and and Transmotive Technologies, which I'm, I'm not positive was uh, uh, an automotive uh, uh, company or not. But at least one of them, uh, U.S. Electrocar, based on the name, was an electric uh, car company. And uh, of course, they're all all the craze these days. But what was what was the industry like back then? And, and did people envision the kind of consumer vehicles like Tesla that we have now? Or, or was the vision uh, for the space much different back then? <laughs> yeah, that was a long time ago. That was in 1993. And while some enthusiasts, I think, envisioned the personally owned electric vehicle, the real uh, focus at that time was the deployment of electric vehicles for fleets because the average fleet operator, even in those days, drove less than 25 miles a day on a vehicle. So even with 1993 battery technology, that was well within the capability. And so uh, what that company was looking to do, and I joined, it was my first real entrepreneurial venture um, at that time in the automotive space. And what they were looking to do was to create fleet vehicles using relatively low-cost technology then that could be deployed uh, across things like the power company vehicles that drive around for meter readers or the U.S. Postal Service, for example, those little postal vehicles that we all see in those days average less than 20 miles a day. So they're a great candidate for electric electrification. Uh, We had an electric bus program and uh, had some interesting technologies, developed the the first safety certified electric vehicle in the U.S., but in 1994, the administration changed and a lot of the federal mandates for the use of electric vehicles and fleets disappeared, and they were still more expensive than the gas-powered alternatives, so our market really dried up out from under us, and that was a case. We had a good technological solution, but uh, factors beyond the control of the startup changed the market, and that, uh, that was the end of that company. I think uh, solar dishes have suffered uh, similar fates when uh, the price of oil dropped and suddenly, you know, solar dishes were not so were not so heavily sought after. Yes, there's external effects that I think can can always play upon anyone in a startup or in a development stage venture, and that's why I always encourage people to don't let your the success of your product become a reflection of your success on the project that those may be independent you can have very good projects that don't go on to become commercial successes and conversely i've seen examples of very mediocre projects that became huge commercial successes because they were in the right place at the right time very good very good in 1998, you co-founded uh, Trivascular, and and uh, looks like you raised about 20 million dollars to do so. And you you later went on to raise even more in Series A and Series B funding. Uh, how how did you do that? I mean, uh, m- maybe maybe you did have uh, some VC experience back then, but how did you know like how to approach a VC firm and what to say and and uh, just how, how to get through that whole process? Oh, we did not have experience. I had two co-founders that uh, I worked with at the time, and uh, Joe Humphrey and Mike Chobotov. 
And we've all had known each other because we were all grad students at Caltech together. And we had never raised any VC money. And uh, we made all the mistakes. The answer to <laughs> how we figured out how to do it was we made all the mistakes and checked them off one at a time. Uh, we came in with, uh, with poor being unprepared. Our presentations were too long. They were unfocused. And then we had a lot of trouble. We probably had 30 rejections. And we knew we had a good product idea and that this had, was sound. And we were showing uh, images of the design concept and showing a lot of computer simulations that would explain how it worked and show the feasibility of this design. And we got a lot of bobbing heads that said, yeah, that looks very interesting. And then at the end, with the follow-up would be, but it's not right for us. It's too early. Hmm. All the usual uh, explanations. And finally, the, one of the best things we did was we started gathering in, in our advisory group around us people that had done this before. And uh, we got an advisor, a gentleman by the name of Steve Weiss, who was an ex-venture capitalist. And he said, he, all three of us had come from aerospace. None of us had any medical device background. And he said, the medical device venture guys you're talking to aren't used to seeing all this technology stuff. They're used to seeing some hardware. So you've got to bring a shoebox with some hardware prototypes in it. And he said, really? But if we have a clear definition of the problem and we have this technology and we have these good simulations, building a prototype isn't hard. And he said, build, take shoebox, build some prototypes. So we took his advice and the next meeting we went to was in about two weeks and we have prototypes in the shoebox were incredibly primitive. But we took them in and after we showed all the fancy graphics and how we understood the problem and our general approach and the simulation results, we pulled out some prototypes and showed them and things changed from there dramatically and much more receptivity. So I really would put that at its root to we surrounded ourselves by people who had done what we were trying to do and asked them questions and tried to take their advice. That That's such a perfect example of how important it is to know what your customer wants. Uh, I mean, you guys had all this data and technology and uh could show exactly how this was going to solve a need, um, which for, you know, a lot of people probably would have been perfect, but these guys were looking for a prototype. That's what they wanted to see. And as soon as you met that need, as soon as you identified that quote unquote customer requirement, boom, things changed. And that, that actually is a perfect segue into another question I, I wanted to ask you. Um, at Trivascular, um, one of your roles was to ensure that the product met clinical needs. Now, being engineers, at least in my experience, it's so easy for us to just want to jump into the design, you know, and, and, and start, you know, getting into CAD and doing some benchtop testing before we fully understand the customer's needs. How did you keep your team disciplined to avoid that pitfall? And, and what did your team do to ensure that the product they developed accurately met the market needs? Oh, that's a great point and great question. It has been one of my pet peeves from the very beginning and one of my founding principles in engineering has been to focus on the problem. Don't start with the solution. And uh, specifically at Trivascular, we were working on a problem in aortic disease, specifically aortic aneurysms. 
And the long and short of it, without getting into the details, is it involves making a seal inside the blood vessel above and below a weakened area. So you take the pressure off. And we looked at the technologies that were used in a couple of other early devices, and they were stents, vascular stents and grafts, things that were already in use in other medical devices. And it looked like people had just got some of those components and put them in the middle of the table and said, let's build a new device and we're going to call it a stent graft. And it really was poorly suited for the application. Uh, engineers don't seal fluids using stents, which are nothing more than radial springs. But using radial springs and fabric, engineers seal fluids with gaskets and O-rings. And they've been doing that for 100 years. We didn't pioneer that. And so what we really brought to the problem was, at its simplest terms, this is not so much a, a medical device. This is a fluids problem where we need to seal a fluid at two ends of a tube. And so if we need to do that, we need to figure out how to use gaskets and O-rings. And that was really the focus on the problem. And we brought that into the team from the very beginning. We talked about using proven engineering principles and staying focused on the problem and pay no attention to how other people solve it. And actually, our company, in, in sharp contrast to many other small companies of the day, we were probably seven years old and we didn't have a single competitive device that solved the same problem anywhere in the building. Because we really didn't care how other people did it. We were focused on making sure we knew how to solve the problem. And I certainly, to this day, many projects later, I'm a firm believer in that kind. Well, I love how you broke that down so simply. Gaskets and O-rings, right? It doesn't get much more simple than that. I'm sure the the uh, solution eventually was was complex, but uh, to be able to see it through the lens of these fundamental, um, you know, the, the basics, uh, that's powerful. That, uh, that was exactly what uh, the, our approach, and I think uh, that that clarity helps so often because I think as as engineers, we come into problems and they're they're complex. There's a lot of uh, confusing bits of data and pieces and so on and really peeling all the, the details away and looking at fundamentally what's the physics that underlies the problem and what's the right physics to use to solve that problem. I've always found is a great weather vane for which way to go, which approach to follow to, to solve this problem. Yeah, yeah ab absolutely. Um, well, let's take just a few seconds, a uh, quick break here, and uh, remind the listeners that the, the Being an Engineer podcast is powered by Pipeline Design and Engineering, where we work with predominantly medical device engineering teams who need turnkey custom test fixtures or automated equipment to assemble, inspect, characterize, or perform verification or validation testing on their devices. And you can find us at testfixturedesign.com. Robert, I'd like to jump back into trivascular, and there, there's just so much there to talk about. But one of the things I see that you did, and this, uh, you've already brought this up, actually. I just want to dig into it a, a little bit more. One of the things you did there was to develop this uh, FEA simulation, right, for the, the, for the stent design. And uh, like you mentioned, that was back in 97, 98, when the simulation tools we have now are probably much less intuitive to use. So how did you use the, the process as 
uh, a strategic tool for your business and and what efforts went into validating that that simulation process to make sure that the FEA results actually agreed with reality well that's a key aspect of it we brought uh, the technology in as I mentioned from uh, aerospace experience and then having done that in the early days I was doing that during the day I was sort of doing the usual R&D leadership activities and then by night, I was in pounding the keys, building models, running simulations, and, and seeing ultimately what can we learn from them. Uh, because I'm also a big believer that technology doesn't really do any good unless it helps you make decisions in the product development process. So at the end of the day, having all the technology and all the plots and pretty color pictures, it all comes down to what shape should it be, how thick should it be, what material should we make it out of. And if it can't help answer those questions, it's not adding value. Conversely, if it can help us answer those questions, it's adding a lot of value. And so that's uh, that was what I focused on uh, bringing into the team. And then very quickly, we hired another gentleman I had known from previous work who previously came out of Boeing aircraft and had been using nonlinear simulation tools at Boeing, where, of course, that was a workaday practice and brought him into the medical device world. It never worked in our space. We explained the, the problem that we wanted to solve just in mechanical engineering terms. And he immediately knew how to simulate that. And so we got into applying the tools to our particular medical device problems. But to your point of validating that uh, we started small when I continue to advocate in a situation like that, start bite size. In our case, we simulated just the stem. We would simulate, uh, for example, the radial force as a function of diameter. Then we'd go measure that in the lab and see do those two correlate and over a region or over a large diameter range. And if they don't, refine the model, understand what's different. If they correlate, then take the next step and maybe add the next component. And so it's a step-by-step -step building process not only to give you confidence in the simulation results, but that also gives you the insights to make design decisions as you come along. If you just jump in and make a very, very complex simulation and then get a solution, you have no idea if it's right. And you're also not sure what were the important variables and decisions along the way that gave you that answer. And it's often understanding those sensitivities that it provides more insight and more value to the product development process than a point solution does. And so that I think that is one of the key takeaways in, in using that kind of technology is using it to understand design sensitivities that you can't possibly learn through prototype testing. During that time, were, were there parties or individuals who saw you building these models and then going to the lab and trying to validate them? Well, it's not quite right. Let's go back and tweak the model and lab test again. Eh, we need another couple of iterations. Were, were there people seeing that who said, why are you spending all of this time building this model? We can just test it in the lab and we have our answer. What, was there any pushback like that? And if so, how did you deal with it? We had some pushback, of course, but not a lot because it was a company built by three aerospace guys. <laughs> so the, <laughs> they trusted you. They saw the value. <laughs> yeah, the pushback we got was uh, 
anytime you're venture funded, you're looking at the milestones and looking at how much money you have in the bank and you know you have to get from here to there. And so the pressure was largely self-induced. But what we really did that uh, I think early on was a departure from uh, focusing just on the product was we took the simulation a step further to simulate how the product interacted with the tissue. So we could see what would the tissue response be to a stent? Was there a danger that the, the device was going to damage the tissue or cause some sort of uh, inflammatory reaction? Or conversely, were the forces so strong that the device wouldn't stay in place and would move away from the intended location? And while measuring the force on a mechanical object is easy to do in the prototype lab, understanding the interaction between that device and tissue is not easy at all. And then when you might say, and what if I have a range of tissue, some is diseased and some is normal, then people pretty quickly started to see the value of being able to assess that without having to go do a large um, clinical trial or a set of very complex studies. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. You've led a lot of R&D teams in your career. What are some strategies that you've found to be useful in, in creating a productive team? Uh, that's a great question. <laughs> it, it, uh, I think it really all boils down to people. Uh, I, my, I start and end that conversation with getting the right people. Uh, I look for absolute A players. I want strong people who have very solid technical backgrounds, who have a thirst to solve problems, a thirst to create things, uh, a thirst to win. And uh, it's a cliche that winners find a way to win. But in my experience, it's true. And so I start by getting those the very best people I can. And I usually find if after you've got three or four, there's a critical mass because good people like to work with good people. And as soon as you've got the, team, the first three or four A players, then it starts to get a lot easier. But it, there is no task that is more important for a leader than building the right team. And how do you know that uh, someone has this innate appetite for winning? I mean, is that something that, that uh, you think can be identified pretty quickly? Or do, does that just happen over, you know, six months or a year of, of working together? No, I think you, it, it's not. Uh, there's no formula. It's not easy to, to tell. But I'd say I think you can get insights uh, by listening to someone's story of other projects they've been involved in. Um, some people have a, a long history of projects, none of which were successful, but they all had an excuse. And there are other people who have a, a history of projects that all had trouble, but somehow they found a way. And I look for people of the second caliber, the people that always found a way to solve it. They're, we shouldn't have been able to figure this out, but we did. Uh, whether it was we brainstormed a whole different uh, physics-based approach, or whether we just tried several things, or whether we did a very deep dive root cause investigation into why a previous approach wasn't working and we found the root cause and fixed it and solved it. Um, you look for someone who's just got that drive to win. Because I think if, you, if somebody's got the drive, we all run into obstacles and we will find a way through them. There are solutions. It's just a matter of, of getting there. And so, I look for that, and then, and for that to work, you've got to have someone that's got the right technical foundations. Uh, 
someone with a weak technical background uh, in a product development role, they're just going to struggle because they're going to spend time trying to do things that just aren't physically possible. And so we try to find people with a strong technical background and that thirst to win and then put them in an environment where they're part of a team. And I, I use the word team is really overused, I think, today. And I think by making them a part of the team, I mean, they have ownership for the milestone. And we give them a, a tremendous amount of empowerment on how they want to approach it, what tools they want to use, what make sure they're well resourced, what resources they need. And uh, we find the right people will really flourish in that environment. I, I love what you said about uh, listening to an engineer's stories. And it made me think, um, for all you engineers out there that are getting ready to interview, they're on, on the hunt for a job, I think it's so important to practice those stories. You know, uh, like a professional athlete practices their craft, practice telling these stories so that when you're in front of an interviewer, uh, you're not stumbling for the right word. You already have these stories that you've practiced and they, they flow and you can really communicate, uh, your experience because otherwise it's, it's hard to kind of on the spot come up with the right anecdote or, or the right story to demonstrate the value that, that you've brought to teams in the past. I couldn't agree more. I think whether it's an interview situation and you're telling the story of yourself having thought through what are the key points and what are some concrete stories from your past that you can share that give someone insight into your capabilities and uh, contributions you can bring to the team. Uh, that's incredibly valuable. Or whether you're telling the story of an idea to a, the company you work for because you want to get internal support for a project, or whether you're telling the story externally as an entrepreneur to raise capital. Um, the, the setup is the same and learning how to tell the story and practicing telling the story and dry run it with friends, with family, with anybody who will listen and see do they pick up the key points quickly and understanding and how to refine, take their feedback and refine that is a key skill and certainly encourage everybody to work on that. I've been doing it for 30 years and I work on it uh, actively every week. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There has been, I feel like, a lot of talk surrounding how do we create environments in which our teams excel, in which our teams enjoy working? What can we do to benefit the lives and the careers of, of our employees, of our team members? And of course, that's incredibly important. I think an area I'd like to hear a little bit more uh, discussion about is what can team members do for their leaders to make their, their leaders' jobs easier? What, what would you say to that question? What can the engineers do to make, uh, their, their leaders' job easier? That's a great question. And, uh, I think one that, uh, an engineer at any level can always benefit from considering. Uh, the first thing I would say is think about what what would, what would your leader want? Uh, in my role, I want to hear how things are going. I want to hear the good news, the wins. I want to celebrate the wins with you and your team. But I also want to hear the bad news. Where are we struggling? What's not going as well? And what I also want to hear is what's your plan? I love to hear someone that says, well, here's where we're winning. 
here's where we're struggling and this is our plan and we're going to come forward with this approach to see uh, if, if we can solve a particular challenge and always having contingencies so that you know that if plan a doesn't work we have plan b and plan c uh, having that kind of information brought to me as a leader that really helps me to work effectively with that engineer and with that team um, i don't like to be surprised uh, no leader likes it when they hear nothing but good news and then the night before the day before a big presentation well that's actually didn't work or you don't <laughs> surprise exactly so i think that's a the, the key thing i would say is avoid surprises yeah our, our engineering manager here at pipeline likes to say that bad news does not age well i always thought that was <laughs> a very clever saying uh and and that it's a huge point i think that um uh how do I phrase this? Uh, I, I absolutely want my team to come to me when there's a problem and, and not try and, you know, pretend that problem doesn't exist. I, I encourage people, uh, when you're delivering a problem to your project manager or whoever it is, don't just deliver the problem. Think about the solution as well. Uh, it's just like you said, Robert, but coming to your leader with just a problem, yeah, that, that kind of puts your leader in a tough spot. But if you can go there with a problem and an idea for a solution, that, that says a lot more about the individual um, than otherwise. Absolutely. And in fact, uh, when that's kind of a, a step in the phases uh, that I see the growth and maturity of someone on one of my uh, direct reports. In the beginning, they'll come to me with a problem and I will not give them an answer. I will lead them to go figure out some answers and come back to me with some. And then after a while, they'll come to a problem to me with a problem and say, Robert, I got a problem and here's a couple of solutions. What do you think? And I think that's great. We talk about which one should do and I say, yeah, go do that. And then what I find is after a while, they'll come back to me and say, Robert, uh, I've got a problem. Here are three solutions. This is the one I want to do. Here's why. And I say, sounds good. Go do that. <laughs> the final phase is they come to me and say, Robert, we had a problem, but we had three solutions and we implemented one of them and it solved it. <laughs> and I say, that's great. Uh, a good afternoon. So absolutely, it's a, a, a sequence and bringing potential solutions, even if they're not the one you end up going with, shows initiative to a leader that you really want to see. Uh, Robert, we're, we're about at time here, and I want to be respectful to your time because I know you're a busy man. I do have a few more questions I would love to ask, but only if you have a few more minutes. Uh, that's fine. Absolutely. Oh, okay, going. great. Great. Um, if you had to create a checklist to ensure that an engineering team was, was doing um, the most important factors to contribute to the success of a development program, what would be on that list? A checklist of the most important factors for success to a development program. The, probably the first thing I would say was, do you really understand the problem? Is it a technical problem? Is it a user interface problem? Uh, is it a, a cost problem? What exactly is the problem that you want to solve? And I can't overemphasize that it has to be precise. It can't be a fuzzy understanding of the problem uh, when you're ready to start the solution. 
if the problem understanding is fuzzy, you've got to go clarify that. So the first thing I would say is, do you have a crystal clear understanding of the problem you want to solve? The second thing I would say is, do you have the right team? Do you have the right people around the table? That's the right skill sets, the right temperaments, the right uh, dynamic among the team. Because I've seen teams that you may have the right skill sets, but it's just not the right dynamic for a particular project. And so I look for, do we have the right combination of some would call it hard skills and soft skills uh, there? And then do we have the right resources? Um, there is no point, no matter how passionate four of us in a garage are about doing a manned mission to Mars, that's probably not going to happen. And so we've got to have the right resources. If we don't have the resource to take on the big problem, is there a way we can scale that down? So I kind of look for, do we understand the problem? Do we have the right team? And do we have the right resources? And if we have those three things, we will find a way to win. That is a trifecta right there. That sounds like a recipe to success for sure. All right. If uh, if you had the chance, let, let's say not even the chance, let's say that for some reason you were forced to start your career from the beginning again, what would you do differently? <laughs> oh, that that actually would be fun. I, I would that <laughs> opportunity. That's a, that's a great start to the answer. Yeah. Uh, I would say that I would focus early on, probably on developing communication skills. Uh, early on, I focused a lot on solving the most complex equations and having the most technical depth. And I think that is absolutely important. So I don't downplay that, but I would probably put more emphasis on communication skills and on business skills, understanding how to get financing for a project. Um, when leadership looks at a project, how do they decide whether it's a project to fund and whether it's leadership in a company or uh, talking to a venture capital firm or, or other source of funding or even university department funding? What do they look at? And that comes back to a point you made, Aaron, of what does the customer want here? And if I would have earlier in my career targeted that, I probably could have been more effective early in my career. Okay. What last question, almost the last question, one and a half questions left. Last one's a gimme. What, what are one or two of the biggest challenges that, that you face uh, at, at work, you know, each day, each week, each month? Yeah. Biggest, uh, biggest challenges Boy, the, the fun part of, of my job is those change constantly. Uh, the right now, one of our biggest challenges is COVID-19 and its effect on the, the medical infrastructure. Hospitals are busy treating patients and not doing clinical trials of, of new medical devices. Uh, so I think it's it, managing to the unknown. Uh, as engineers, we like to have things very defined in a box, and we, we do our problem, and we like to have our, our world, and that's that's good. That's what we should strive for. But reality is that the environment changes. Whether it's in our situation, as I just described, uh, an unexpected disease pandemic, or whether it's a competitor comes out with a product that's disruptive to a market you were targeting, and you need to pivot 
and to, to reposition your product relative to that competitor, or whether it's a, a, a funding discontinuity that in, in your company or your venture capital uh, team, suddenly the, you thought funding was in place and it wasn't, and you have to pivot and recast the, the story and the funding strategy for your project. I think those external challenges and how they interact with the team are a tremendous amount of fun. They're challenging, but they're a lot of fun to solve. And that's, that's what I just can't wait to get up and do every day. <laughs> I love to hear that, Robert. Your, your energy and enthusiasm is contagious. How, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, whether it's questions about Arterica or, you know, unrelated, what, what's the best way for a person to get a hold of you? Sure. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn if anybody's looking. Uh, and I'm also at Robert at robertquirley.com. And so feel free to drop me an email. That's W-H-I-R-L-E-Y, correct? That's right. Robert at robertquirley.com. All right. Well, Robert, thank you so much for, for spending some time with us today. Um, it has been very rewarding listening to uh, some stories about your background and hearing some of your insights and uh, the best practices you've shared with us. So thank you so much for, for spending this time. It's been a real pleasure and thank you for having me. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a positive review. It really helps other people find the show. To learn how your engineering team can leverage our team's expertise in developing turnkey custom test fixtures, automated equipment, and product design, visit us at testfixturedesign.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>